You are now listening to Music Legends with your host, Chili Will. What's up, everybody? It's your boy, Chili Willie, a.k.a. Young Laminate Flooring. Today's music legend grew up in the heart of Jamaica, a place many people today think of as paradise. But he didn't grow up in a paradise at all. In fact, he grew up in poverty. And through the poverty, he forged otherworldly songwriting and vocal styles that continue to lead millions of people's ears straight to Zion and the mystic ways of Rastafarianism. In other words, Bob Marley's music just makes you feel all right. But back in 1945, on a small farm in St. Anne Parish, Jamaica, no one was feeling all right. An officer of the Royal Marines stood at the edge of the wood deck, nervously waiting. His 18-year-old wife was just on the other side of the wall, in extreme pain. But 20 minutes later, seeming like a lifetime to them, came a miracle. Nesta Robert Marley was born. Some say he got the music bug right then and there, not even 10 minutes old, after hearing the sounds of the island and the serene open farm. But his mother and father took one look at their newborn baby and realized it was time to move to the city in search of fortune or at least peace of mind. When the family got to the bustling city of Kingston, they were warmly welcomed with quite the opposite of fortune. After sending her son to school, Sadella Marley couldn't afford anything but a mere shack in a housing project in Trenchtown, Jamaica. Of course, Nesta's father helped support the family financially, but that was only enough to put food on the table. And that was only for a couple years. Nesta was only 10 years old when his father died of a heart attack. For the rest of the family, the next few years were difficult and dark to say the least. Nesta was being bullied heavily at his school and beaten almost daily because his name, Nesta, sounded too feminine and he was so much whiter than the rest of his peers. He got that from his father who was originally from England with Syrian and Jewish heritage. Still, neither of these things he could change. But he did change his name some reports say even a Jamaican passport official thought his name was Gurley when reviewing it while crossing into city limits. He took the liberty then and there to reverse his first and middle names. So from now on, he was Robert Nesta Marley. The bullying died down at school, but he and his mother were still struggling to put food on the table daily to the point where Robert would have to search through several dumpsters or beg restaurants to take home their scraps. Please. Regardless on how he obtained the food, he and his mother were surviving his mother was more than surviving. She was about to get remarried. Marley's mother went on to remarry Thaddeus Livingston, who was the father of Robert's closest friend, Bunny Whaler. Before their parents got together, they were pretty much already brothers. Bunny didn't care if Bob wasn't as black as the rest of the kids. He didn't care if his name sounded like a girl's name. <laughs> I mean, his name was Bunny. In a sense, they were both outcasts, but they were about to find their place. See, they walked home from school every day and felt at home even before they got home. The streets of Trenchtown, Kingston were wild with not only the hardships of poverty, but a beautiful blend of culture and music. 
Bunny and Robert would walk past feral dogs, being fed by homeless musicians who would slowly strum their guitars to the sound of distant American radio stations, playing all kinds of music legends, such as Elvis Presley. and Ray Charles. On every other corner, there were groups of boys and girls of all ages, singing and dancing using homemade instruments out of steel trash cans, the claps of their hands, and the harmonization of all their voices put together. Sometimes it would take Robert and Bunny hours just to get home, as they were fascinated and would watch these scenes take place right in front of their eyes. Naturally, it was only a matter of time before the boys decided to participate. One day after school, while they were watching one of the vocal groups perform, one of the members asked them if they wanted to come up and try it. The member's name was Joe Higgs, who was a little older than Robert and Bunny, and known for tutoring younger musicians. His vocal group was even comprised of all his students. Under the teachings of his new mentor, Robert started devoting all his time to music and singing. Bunny and Robert were only 17 and played no instruments, but they were making music every single day. Today, Joe Higgs may not be musically legendary as some of his students would be soon, but he was definitely a local legend. Some people called him the father of reggae, but he was more than just the so-called father of reggae. He was a surrogate parent, a brother, an uncle, and musical guide for the groups of ghetto urchins who liked to gather around his house. He was serious about his craft, and that kept his posse out of trouble and in the recording studio. This is where Bob Marley would record his first songs. The youthfulness and hope in Bob Marley's voice struck the soul of the on-site record producer to the point where he wanted to mass-produce the song Bob Marley wrote only minutes before he recorded it. However, the record company mispronounced his name as Bob Morley. Bob and Bunny didn't care though. They were getting paid 20 pounds, which has the same buying power today as 407 pounds, or 540 US dollars. Honestly, it wasn't much money, but the song became a local hit. Joe Higgs began investing more time in Bob's career and started teaching him how to play the guitar and write and sing songs properly. A couple months later, Bob was invited back to the studio. When they got there, the record producer said to Joe, thanks for bringing your teenagers back. They recorded another three songs that day, Terror, One Cup of Coffee, and Do You Still Love Me. They received a little more extra money. You teenagers really are something else, the producer said. A light bulb went off in Bob's mind and he asked if they could be published under the name The Teenagers, instead of Bob Morley. And he did it. When Joe Higgs took the young band under his wing, they became serious. Especially now that they've been getting paid. Unfortunately, it wasn't enough. Most of the band members were in their late teens and early 20s and had part-time jobs doing manual labor. Bob felt responsible for supporting his family and got a job as a welder. However, it wouldn't last long. After only a few weeks, Bob would have a welding accident that would cause a serious eye injury. He was insanely lucky though. It was a close call from losing his eye, yet he didn't. 
and he came out of the situation with no damage to his sight. His mother said this about the accident, quote, I really didn't choose anything special as a job for him. I knew men who were doing welding for a living. I suggested that he go down to the shop and make himself an apprentice. He hated it. One day he was welding some steel, and a piece of metal flew off and got stuck right in the white of his eye. It caused him terrible pain. It even hurt for him to cry, and he had to go to the hospital twice to have it taken out, unquote. Bob took this situation as a sign from the higher power to stop everything and focus completely on music. He went back in the studio, quote, Good to see you teenagers back again. Bob replied charmingly, We may still be teenagers, but now we're the Wailing Rue Boys. They recorded the song Simmer Down, which there's no real evidence of this, but with lyrics like, quote, Simmer Down, oh, for the battle will be hotter, unquote. I like to think Bob wrote this song while healing from his welding accident. Simmer Down would become a hit in Jamaica and end up selling 70,000 copies within the first year of its release. The group became very popular in Jamaica, but they still had difficulty making it financially. Most of the money they earned come from their newly found popularity and would all go to the record label. Half of the members left the group. The remaining members drifted apart for a time. Marley was left to fend for himself. Well, kind of. It was him and the other bands he'd befriended while playing music all around Trenchtown. Now that he didn't have a band, he could freely roam around from band to band, getting money from playing shows with them, all the while he was falling in love with someone from one of those bands. Rita Anderson was a singer and shared his passion for music. However, the poverty was finally getting to him, so 21-year-old Bob Marley decided to make the move to the United States, where his mother was now living. His mother said this about moving to the United States in her memoir, quote, a land of wealth and plenty, where all is prosperous and flourishing. My Jamaican eyes were dazzled by the sights of riches." Unquote. Before Bob left, he tied the knot with Rita Anderson on February 10, 1966. He was ready to move to the United States, where he settled in Delaware. His pregnant newlywed gave birth to their first daughter, and with one look into his daughter's eyes, Bob knew he had to take a break from his musical ambitions and save money to support his new family. Under the alias Donald Marley, he started a job on an assembly line at a Chrysler plant where he was building cars. Now, if you have a Chrysler made around 1967, there's a chance it might have been made by a music legend. His working hours were absolutely grueling, but he made a lot of money. One Saturday afternoon, he was at home taking a nap, and Bob had a dream. He dreamt a man wearing a khaki suit and a weathered hat appeared before him. The man described himself as a prince who once knew his father. The prince presented Bob with a ring with a curious black jewel. He suddenly awoke from this mystical reverie and described the vision to his mother. She walked out of the room. A minute later, she came back holding the very ring from the dream. 
Bob gently slipped it on his finger, but he didn't feel comfortable wearing it. He kept asking himself, where did this ring come from? There was something mystical and almost divine about it, so there was no chance he was wearing it to work at an assembly line. But when he wasn't working, he would sometimes sit and look at the black jewel on the ring and think about how he could be on a completely different path than the one he was already on. Although he loved his wife Rita and his children, he imagined a life filled with music. Bob would sometimes get home from his job and practice playing guitar all night. The introverted singer made a few friends, but he mostly preferred to merely tolerate his present and fantasize about the future. In his mother's words, he was, quote, lost without his musician friends. On weekends, he lolled around the house picking out simple melodies on a cheap acoustic guitar. He would write lyrics in a little book he kept in his back pocket in case an idea emerged. And at least a couple really good ideas did come during that time, but they were about to come to an end. Bob's alias, Donald Marley, slid him through eight months in America, but he made a fatal mistake when he applied to social security. One morning he walked outside, smelled the fresh air, and listened to the birds singing as he walked up to the mailbox. What he found devastated him. It was a letter from the U.S. Military Draft Board for the Vietnam War. He was left with a choice, fight a war that wasn't his, or go back to Jamaica where he felt there was nothing left for him. He would take this as a sign, but from who? Well, he would soon figure that out. He decided to go back to Jamaica to find the many answers he'd been searching for. A couple months later, Bob Marley found himself deep in the midst of a spiritual journey that would change his life and career forever. He'd been hopping from village to village with his family and his spiritual mentor, Mortimo Kumai Plano who just happened to be a drummer at the time working at Studio One, which was the studio where Bob recorded his first songs. And coincidentally, the first place Bob went after coming home to Jamaica. When Bob and Mortimo Kumai Plano met at the studio the first day he got home, Bob had no idea he was a renowned elder of the Rastafari movement. He had no idea he would spend the next four months in small Jamaican villages with this man. But as Bob looked into the mystic man's eyes, he had some idea that he was finally going to learn the answers he'd been searching for. And from then on, he taught Bob the enchanting ways of Rastafara. Don't try to hold me up on this bridge now. I've got to reach Mount Zion, As they hopped from village to village, Bob's new mentor taught him about the traditions of dreadlocks, which are biblically inspired and legitimized by the Book of Numbers. Regarded as the symbol of strength linked to the hair of the biblical figure Samson, dreadlocked hair is shaped and styled, usually inspired by a lion's mane. But most importantly, he taught Bob about Jah, the god of Rastafara, who live inside everyone, but the man who was most closely related to Jah on earth was the African prince Hale Selesi. Bob remembered his dream about the African prince who gave him that ring. He looked down at the ring his mother gave him afterward, and Bob finally knew he was on the right path. Two months later, in a small village, Bob took a look at himself in a dust-filled mirror and flashed a soft, warm smile. Though, other than the smile, he was almost unrecognizable. He hadn't seen his own face for over two months, 
His hair had been growing into dreadlocks, just the way he'd hoped. Bob Marley had fully immersed himself in the ways of Rastafari, and now it was time for him to start living a fully enlightened life and start making music again. But he still didn't have a band, so how did Bob Marley continue to make great music? Find out right after this short break. What's up, everybody? I just want to take a quick second to tell you all about something cool, something funny, something you can watch while you're sitting on the toilet or waiting for the bus. Wherever you watch it, just be prepared to be entertained. It's my brand new YouTube channel, and it's not just a YouTube channel. It's a whole new show. It's called Chilling with Will and Willie. It's a show about the most crazy current events and life happenings, with a little spice at the end. Which means I'll be trying to review the hottest new songs while eating the world's hottest peppers. So come on down to YouTube and chill with Will and Willie. And while you're chilling, don't forget to subscribe. But for now, back to music legends. How did Bob Marley continue to make great music without a band? Luckily, Bob kept in contact with most of his bandmates throughout their time away. As it turned out, they all wanted to get back together. They had just started becoming popular before their disappearance. But now, they were back. And legend has it that this is the time they created some of their best work. Bob lyrically poured out everything in his soul. The band followed along, improving their musicianship to the 10th degree. Make you want to move. It was now when Bob and his band approached Island Records and innovative record producer Chris Blackwell. And through him, they met the brothers Aston and Carly Barnett, who joined Bob and the Whalers to play bass and drums. Now with a big enough band and a producer who's legendary in his own right, they felt it was the perfect time to get experimental. They incorporated sounds of doo-wop and used sound effects and 60s sounding guitar tones, making a record that sounded more like the Beatles than reggae. Bob even admitted it was inspired by pop music. Blackwell wanted, quote, more of a drifting, hypnotic type feel than reggae rhythm. At the time, I was dealing with a lot of rock music, which was really rebel music. I felt that would really be the way to break Jamaican music. But you need someone who could be that image. When Bob walked in, he really was that image, unquote. Chris Blackwell believed in Bob deep within his soul enough to where he gifted him his entire Kingston residence and company headquarters. So the Whalers went back to Jamaica to record, which was the result of the album Catch a Fire. Catch a Fire was the first reggae album to ever use state-of-the-art recording equipment. So as the production value of reggae music was building up to a level they could compete with, they decided to release the album worldwide. Initially, it only sold 14,000 copies, and it didn't make the band stars. Though, it did help the world develop an awareness for reggae music. So when Bob and his band released their next album, the people of the world were ready to hear reggae music for what it was. The album included the song, I Shot the Sheriff which was an epic politically charged song. But when Eric Clapton was given the album by guitarist George Terry, Clapton was particularly impressed with the unique qualities of the guitar and reggae music itself. So he immediately went to the studio to record a cover version.
This song became Clapton's first US hit since Layla. His cover reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100. After this album and the help of Eric Clapton, Bob and the Wailers gained the fans of rock, reggae, and pop music. And that's a lot of fans. Seemingly overnight, the music-loving Rastafarians became worldwide heroes. During this time, his producer and manager developed a world tour for the band. Bob basked in the little time he had off. He spent time with his growing family, now with eight kids. He played soccer, which was his favorite way to spend time when he wasn't making music. In this interview, he talks about what the game means to him. If you couldn't understand, he said, football is a whole kind of skill to itself, a whole world, a whole universe to itself. Me love it because you have to be skillful to play it, because we play football and we play music, unquote. He loved to teach his children the game of soccer and the art of music. He wanted to pass the skills down from generation to generation. But it wasn't long before Bob was away from his family and on a world tour with his band. Bob and the Wailers were scheduled for 17 shows as the opening band in the U.S. for Sly and the Family Stone. But after only four shows, the band was fired. And not for anything wrong, but everything they did right. They were more popular than any of the other acts that were performing. Everyone at the show was staying to watch Bob Marley and his band, and leaving before the main act could even step on the stage. It was a good problem to have, but that wasn't their only problem. Some say there were disagreements among Bunny Whaler, Peter Tosh, and Marley concerning their performance schedule. Others claim Whaler and Tosh simply preferred to work solo. But like most legendary bands, they never got tired of the music, but quickly got tired of each other. The Whalers broke up in 1974, and each of the three main members pursued their own solo career. Bob himself was quick to find a new backing band. His wife Rita even stepped in to sing backup vocals on a couple songs. Although Bob Marley was now an international superstar and a very important person to the music industry, he was someone who thought of music as his passion and a technique for communication, not just a way to make money. Yet still, Bob recognized his power within the music industry, but had his family on his mind, so he started his own record company. He had a professional recording studio built close to his house in Jamaica. So with his brand new recording studio, Bob and Rita put it to good use to help their children form their own band, The Melody Makers. Tough Gong Studios had its very own record manufacturing plant. Bob became the first artist in Jamaica to not only own his own recording studio, but to manufacture his own records. On December 3rd, 1976, Bob, his wife, and his manager were sitting in his living room talking as they rolled up a sacred herb, one that would soon create a vast haze blocking the view from the windows and the evil that lie on the other side. In a flash, the glass window broke and shattered into a million pieces on the bamboo floor. 
Bob, his wife, and his manager looked to see what the commotion was, but before they could even turn their heads, they heard a loud pop and saw the flash of a gun. They ducked down under their couches as more gunshots flew all around them. Unfortunately, this is real life, not the Matrix, and they couldn't dodge all the bullets. Bob's wife and manager sustained serious injuries, but later made full recoveries. Bob received minor wounds in the chest and arms. These three individuals meant so much to so many people, but at this moment, the only thing they were was a target. Entertainer and reggae star Bob Marley, Rita Marley, and the manager of the Whalers, Don Taylor, are now patients in the university hospital after receiving gunshot wounds during a shooting incident, which took place at Marley's home at 56 Hope Road. The shooter escaped and to this day remains unknown. However, it's thought to have been politically motivated because Bob had an upcoming concert two days from then called Smile Jamaica. It was a free concert organized by the Jamaican Prime Minister with the goal to ease tension between warring gangs and political groups throughout Jamaica. And what better way to do that than through music? And especially the kind of music Marley made. Nonetheless, the concert proceeded, and an injured Marley performed as scheduled. Two days after the shooting, when asked why, he responded, quote, The people who are trying to make this world worse aren't taking a day off. How can I? Unquote. And he played beautifully in front of a festival crowd of over 80,000. After the concert, he and his family left Jamaica and his newly built recording studio to go all the way to England on a self-imposed exile. In England, he recorded the albums Exodus and Kea. Exodus stayed on the British charts for over 55 consecutive weeks. During his time in London, he was arrested for cannabis. He was only in jail for a week, but after seeing the decrepit and ghastly people locked up with him, he realized it was time to go back to Jamaica. When he returned, he started living his life casually, as casually as he could now that he was a living legend. In 1977, Marley was found to have a type of malignant melanoma under the nail of his toe. Bob turned down his doctor's advice to have his toe amputated, which would have threatened his performing career and his religious beliefs. Two years later, after continuing his career obsessively, making another album and touring constantly, he started receiving alternative treatment, but his health was visibly decreasing and was about to get a whole lot worse and possibly even weirder. Years later, some conspiracy theorists have suggested that the cancer may have been purposely injected in an effort to poison him and kill him for political reasons. If that's true, they were about to succeed. One day on his tour bus, he collapsed. Although scary, it was convenient because they could drive straight to the hospital in his tour bus. When someone collapses, like Bob did, doctors are going to conduct a neurological exam. They're going to test Bob's strength, reflexes, vision, hearing, his balance, coordination, and his memory. They're also going to evaluate scans of his brain. Doctors quickly find the cause of the collapse. Bob has a large tumor in his brain. A brain tumor is a mass of cells that grow slowly in the brain. The tumor puts pressure on other areas and can lead to neurons misfiring, causing seizures and loss of vision. This is what caused Bob's collapse. The critical question is whether these cells are benign and can be surgically removed with little consequence, or whether they're malignant and cancerous and have the ability to spread or to have come from some other cancerous source within the body. 
the doctors start running tests to determine how serious Bob's tumor is. Bob signs himself out of the hospital and delivers what will be his last ever performance. Yeah! Greetings in the name of his imperial majesty, Imperial The cancer had spread to his brain, and Bob was quite literally about to perform the show of his lifetime. At only 36, the spread of melanoma to his lungs and brain caused his death. His final words to his son Ziggy were, quote, money can't buy life, unquote. Robert Nesta Marley, me say happy anniversary. Rasta man vibration, iron like a lion in a Zion. We ball out, everybody loves Bob Marley. Everywhere I go, it's the same. After his death, his most successful album to date was released. The album was called Legend. I love that Bob Marley is such a legend that one of his greatest albums is straight up called Legend. And the album fits its title as it's become the best-selling reggae album of all time, selling more than 25 million copies worldwide. Bob's music gave a voice to the day-to-day -day struggles of the Jamaican experience. He painted a vivid picture capturing not only Jamaica's poverty and oppressed people, but their beautiful spirituality that continues to be the country's source of strength. He introduced his unique sounds to every end of the world with deeply human songs about faith, devotion, and revolution, which almost caused a revolution, but instead caused a legacy that continues to live on not just through the music of his family, but through generations of other music legends Bob Marley's genius has helped create. Thank you all so much for listening to Music Legends. If you haven't already, Share it with some friends. And if you liked what you just heard, write me a good review on iTunes or wherever you listen. I know it seems like a simple little thing, but it really does mean the world to me. This episode was produced, edited, and recorded by me, Chili Willie. I also want to give a quick but big shout out to my friend and teacher, Chase Thompson, who helps a bunch as well. He's a complete badass when it comes to podcasting and pretty much anything else audio related. Thanks for everything. It's only the beginning. And for everyone else, what music legend do you want me to do next? Hit me on the email at musiclegendspodcast at gmail.com, or the snail mail, or a paper scroll sealed by wax, whichever way you prefer to transfer words. This has been Music Legends with Chilly.